electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the keynote by CNBC Events. I'm Meg Terrell. On this podcast, we bring you in-depth, candid conversations with executives, experts, and thought leaders. Today, my conversation with Eli Lilly Chairman and CEO David Ricks about the potential of new therapies in treating Alzheimer's disease, conducting clinical trials during a pandemic, and bringing employees back into the office. Ricks joined me at CNBC's Healthy Return Summit on May 11, 2021. Here's our conversation. Dave Ricks, thanks for being with us. And let's start right there on Alzheimer's. You and I have talked a lot of times over the years about this long, hard fight that perhaps no company has been more invested in for a longer period of time than Eli Lilly. And it has been just so tough. You now have a a very promising looking drug uh, that is moving through clinical trials. Give us a little bit of the history uh, for Lilly in the Alzheimer's space for folks who haven't followed it closely, why it's been so tough, and, and tell us about this new drug you have and why you're hopeful about it. Yeah, thanks, Meg. Great to be on. And, um, you know, clearly as we look at the field of healthcare ahead, you know, the unmet needs in, in neuroscience and, and mental health still have to be the greatest um, gap we have. And so we're, I guess, on the one hand, proud to have worked for so long and so hard on those diseases on the other hand, you know, we have come up short, um, but as you point out, we are continuing to work on this, and we think getting closer and closer to the goal. As you know, we, we've been working on Alzheimer's for more than 30 years, and in some ways, the story of Alzheimer's, which is moving, is sort of the normal pace of, of change in medicine. Maybe the COVID pandemic gave us a sense that everything could move that fast. We want to speed things up, but we started with a vague idea about how this disease works and really measuring phenomena when we have uh, give a substance, what happens. Through the years though, I think uh, some adaptations occurred that are allowing us to get closer to the goal that are also true across all other forms of drug development. The first is that we're getting better ways to measure change. And um, you know, we, we start by asking doctors what they think, but more and more we're relying on biologic changes we can observe in the patients brains in this case, uh, via PET scanning and other tools to say, are we moving biology? Another thing is we've opened up new target opportunity by using new modalities to to target biology. In this case, therapeutic antibodies, which have been worked on for some time. We're even talking about other modalities in the future, gene, uh, RNA therapies, for instance, uh, for diseases like Alzheimer's. That will uh, allow us to, to, to move quicker, but also Uh, target these diseases more carefully. And finally, patient selection. Which patients to work on and when? Here's a lifetime disease that probably has 30 or 40 years of runway before we see symptoms. Uh, When do we intervene? And um, when's the best time for this drug to make a difference? We're narrowing in all those things. And as you point out, we had a positive phase two study for a drug called dononumab in, uh, in Q1. We're doing a replication study now, excited to get those results over the next year or two. 
So as you are working on that drug, Biogen has a drug that is up in front of the FDA, uh, aducanumab, um, which is working the same area, sort of targeting those plaques in the brain as well. How important is what the FDA does about the Biogen drug for your program and sort of what it signals about how the regulator is looking at Alzheimer's disease drugs and the kind of evidence needed uh, to approve them? Mm. Well, on the first count, look, as someone who has had people with Alzheimer's in my family and has seen the impact of this disease, I'm hopeful that uh, medicines can be available to treat them because, as you know, it's the only killer. And and Alzheimer's, is we don't talk about it this way often, it's it's a, a disease that kills those who are afflicted with it. And it does so in about seven years uh, from diagnosis. So it's a fatal condition that we have nothing to slow down or stop. So we need medicines here. And one of the problems in investing in this area, as you know, we've, we've been one of the few that have invested all along the way, is it hasn't been particularly rewarding or practical for a lot of companies, particularly those with um, l- you know, less financial capability than a lily. Um, so in, the, in those regards, you know, I'm hopeful that the FDA will begin to approve drugs here. Um, I do think, um, of course, there's been controversy with that package, and, and the company sponsoring that can talk about it. But through the course of development, you know, we've seen these problems of do we have the right target, are we treating the patient at the right time, and are we measuring the changes effectively enough, as I just mentioned. And um, one of the ways we think our program has really improved on the past is by improving all three of those things. It's a, ours is a plaque-clearing antibody that's very effective, deep clearance of plaque very quickly, we're putting the right patients in the study. In this case, we measured a protein called tau, which is thought to be more aligned with symptoms. And we're measuring change with PET scan in every single person so we can see pathology. And we think that's the way forward. And uh, we'll watch, of course, very carefully what happens with this approval and take our cues from that. But we've already started our replication study and feel good about the probability of success there. And for folks who have family members with Alzheimer's, you know, the, the timing is such an important question, as it yeah. is, of course, also for your investors who have been yes. so patient if they've been with you for 30 years in your Alzheimer's quest. What kind of timing are you expecting for the pivotal data for denanumab um, and then potentially for getting through the FDA if they look good? Yeah, so we'll, uh, we hope to finish recruitment in this replication study, which is about four times the size of the phase two study uh, this fall. And then the study is designed to go 18 months. Um, so, uh, you know, on the long end would be to follow that all the way through, submit to the FDA and have a review. Um, so that would put us, um, what, into uh, late 23, early 24. But um, there are opportunities, as you know, from adaptive pathways at the FDA to consider looking at data sooner or uh, have other ways um, to move more quickly, do parts of the review um, that are not sensitive to that endpoint time period. And we want to explore all of those with the agency. Um, there are no guarantees there. It's, it's their judgment to make, but those pathways are available, and we think they should be applied in a, a serious and widespread condition like Alzheimer's. Mm. You mentioned um, new approaches to Alzheimer's through gene yeah. or RNA therapies. Of course, you know anyone hearing the letters RNA these days might think mRNA. Yes. Um, are there approaches using potentially messenger RNA, or I know there are other applications of RNA therapies um, that could really be kind of a sea change approach to Alzheimer's that could um, move a lot more quickly, that could um, just show you know different kinds of positive results uh, fast, like we've been able to see with these amazing vaccines using mRNA. Yeah, I mean, RNA technology writ large is a, is a fascinating uh, new topic that's in the public domain. You see it on the cover of 
you know, everyday newspapers and on your, on your TV program all the time. What is it? Well, you know, it's really the upstream step of creating proteins, and proteins are the building block of life, but also the main target of every other drug we've made in the history of the pharmaceutical industry. We've targeted them more directly. Here we're saying let's target them upstream of their formation, and, and the mRNA vaccines do that in a different way from other technologies which we're more focused on. In particular, short interfering RNA, which is a kind of blocking to that protein being made. So what we do is we look for diseases that have too much of a protein that we can block with a single short interfering RNA, and we then look to make um, kind of the blocker for that and um, give it over time. These have the advantage of being very targeted. So the idea of having fewer side effects, if you can get the t the, them to the tissue of interest, the brain in this case, and very long-lasting. Uh, the potential for a dose every three or six months, which is, I think, highly preferred to a daily pill or a monthly infusion or what have you. So we're looking at that for all in the dirt neurodegenerative diseases because they present good targets. There's um, increasingly uh, the roadmap uh, for g human genomics is unfolding in uh, brain diseases. And um, we may not start with Alzheimer's directly, but Parkinson's, ALS, other neurodegenerative conditions that have similarities to Alzheimer's are places we're, we're exploring, along with, of course, Alzheimer's, because we've been at that so long. So that's, a, that's in the future, but a really promising and very interesting um, new modalities for treatment, all based on this, I guess, broad RNA revolution. And of course, Lilly has been working itself on drugs for this pandemic, and I want to get to your work there. But before I do, as kind of a segue, you know, you've got a lot of different clinical trial programs going on in a lot of different diseases. And throughout this last pandemic year, you know, we've seen people missing their doctor's appointments. It's been harder for folks to get preventive care. Um, what has been the impact of the pandemic on your ability to run clinical trials? Have there been any delays in your programs because of the pandemic? It's so interesting. You know, a year ago, about this time, we um, were really digging into this question. I think we might have been one of the first companies to announce that we were suspending the starting of new trials uh, in April last year and then uh, pausing enrollment as well, because healthcare systems in very specific geographies sort of collapsed. They, their ability to run clinical trials really was diminished. But bit by bit, we put this uh, back together, and really by the end of the second quarter last year, had done a number of things to uh, restore clinical starts. We actually had a record number of phase one starts last year for our company. And then um, also continue enrollment in the big studies. And interestingly, these new ways, which are mostly embracing remote enrollment, remote uh, patient monitoring, and even in some cases, patients self-monitoring and, and taking um, their own laboratory tests, for instance, and sending them in, um, either digitally or physically in the mail. Um, we ended the year really just on schedule last year for what we had expected to without the pandemic. I think it really points to the future of clinical trials, Meg, which is one where we probably can use less healthcare infrastructure to get the scientific answers we need. And this opens the promise of doing studies faster, doing them cheaper, uh, but also accessing new populations. And I think we've all talked about uh, extensively the problem of diversity in clinical trials, reaching populations that the healthcare system doesn't support very well. Here we might have a chance to do better than that with a more remote kind of clinical trial enrollment, self-care, and data reporting. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com/activecash. I want to ask you also about Lily's plans as a major employer to bring folks back to the office as we get through this. I mean, I imagine given the work you do, a number of your employees didn't have the ability to work from home through the pandemic. But I saw some local Indianapolis press yesterday saying Lily plans to reopen its offices at least to some degree this summer and require vaccination. Can you tell us about your approach to that? Yeah, for sure. And it is a good reminder that actually a a pretty good chunk of our employees have been working all through the pandemic in our laboratories here in Indianapolis and uh, in other uh, key locations and in our plants, which, uh, you know, thankfully, uh, those folks came to work every day, even through the teeth of the toughest part of the pandemic to make, you know, life-saving products, cancer medicines, insulin, uh, and keep that flowing. And and to my knowledge, we didn't miss an order, uh, which I think, you know, that could have been cataclysmic for the healthcare system if we had secondary problems with the with the healthcare system. I'm super proud of all those people. And we couldn't have developed new COVID therapies without our, our folks coming to the labs during that period of time. But, uh, you know, of course, we have office workers too. And uh, on March 9th last year, I think we were the first major employer in our state to send everyone home. At that point, we didn't know the duration. It turned out to be longer than we thought. But now we're planning for exit. We have good vaccination uptake in our employee population. The state is okay. We're encouraging everyone to get vaccinated here in our surrounding communities. But the risk levels are dropping, as we see in many, many other parts of the country. And because of that, we now need to plan a back-to-the-office strategy. One important thing is we've learned how to work differently during this pandemic, especially office workers. There's been a lot of talk about, okay, do we need offices at all anymore? We're sure we do. A lot of work needs to be done face-to-face, collaboration, apprenticeship and learning, um, alignment, you know, and connection that we all, you know, brings joy to work uh, with, with our colleagues. But some things can be done remotely, and we want to embrace that and give our office workers more flexibility. We'll start in June with kind of a soft open, uh, June 1st, here at the corporate center where I am now, where we'll bring, invite, bring 25% of the, of the employees back. The rules will be distancing, masking, and vaccination. Very conservative, but I think appropriately to let us sort of experience what that's like again. And then we are planning after the 4th of July week to open uh, everything up as long as uh, the case rates continue to drop and our employee vaccination rates are as high as we believe they will be at that time. And we're getting a question um, from a viewer for you. Mel asks, is there any credible role that the pharmaceutical industry can play in lowering vaccine hesitancy or in, uh, put another way, in boosting vaccine confidence? Lilly obviously is not a vaccine maker, right. but as a member of the industry, do you think there's a role that the industry can play here? It's a great question. And you know, I'm chairing pharma right now. And we've had this debate at our board because there's nothing we want more than to, to really have everyone enjoy the benefits 
of vaccination for themselves and then for our communities to enjoy the benefit of that herd protection. It's, you know, been long said we would have kind of a, a shortage of product at the beginning and a shortage of uh, recipients at the end. And I think we've now made that pivot to the second part of this. And um, I think the answer probably isn't a megaphone from the pharmaceutical industry. But there are things we can do uh, by working in our local employment communities uh, to make a difference. We're doing that here in Indianapolis, partnering with uh, faith-based communities, partnering with other uh, locally trusted sources like in the healthcare system and otherwise sports, uh, sports stars um, to, to deliver public messaging. We've been a part of a coalition that supported that and uh, really get into people's communities from those that they trust. That's the last mile problem that we face. And if I could just observe as well, I think the country nationwide needs a lot more of this right now. It's in our grasp to get to uh, pandemic exit. But it's not there yet. And, and the difference would be more vaccinations in the next 60 days. Hmm. Well, where Lilly has been working directly, of course, is developing antibody drugs and also others uh, to treat COVID-19. We talked with Dr. Walensky uh, about how antibody drugs are just hard because they're uh, IV administrations. We know yeah. that you are working on other ways of delivering these medicines that might make it easier for folks. Um, what is the status of those? Yeah, well, we're super proud, as I said, of the efforts um, we stood up to deliver, you know, in the U.S., over a million doses of these antibodies. To our knowledge, about half a million were delivered to people um, in the teeth of the crisis. And uh, estimates uh, based on our studies is we probably saved a little more than 10,000 lives. So that's, uh, that's what we're here to do, solve humans, uh, uh, humankind's tough problems and do it in a timescale that matters. And we did that. Um, of course, we were moving very fast um, from project start in March to delivering those first doses in November. As you know from covering our industry, that's an unheard of timescale for a new drug development. And in doing so, we didn't seek to optimize this therapy for convenience or even dose or even cost or any of those things. We just wanted to get it safely uh, to people and, and have them be aided, which we did. But uh, in the background, we began working on optimization. So how can we make more? How can we deliver it more conveniently? And this thorny question of um, viral evolution and how to stay in front of that. And we have projects on all those uh, dimensions. I think our partner, Abcelera, had a press release recently about one of those projects, uh, the so-called 1404 molecule, which um, promises to be much more variant resistant and much lower dose. So here you can imagine a subcutaneous self-injection or by a pharmacist or something, that would really help because the best time to administer antibodies is uh, right after the positive test if you're high risk. Um, today, about one in three Americans are getting an antibody when they're in that high-risk group. That's much better than in December where it was like one in 10. Um, but surely that number could improve if we had sort of pharmacy administration and self-injection. So we're, we're uh, working on that very hard in case there's more outbreaks here, but also to address the global problems that are presenting themselves like in India and around the world where we still have raging uh, COVID um, uh, disease. Absolutely. And of course, the, the industry has been working toward ways of getting drugs to India and other materials quickly, as has, of course, the, the government um, been making those kinds of donations. Of course, another question about India has been 
this idea of waiving the uh, patent protections around the COVID-19 vaccines so that countries around the world could manufacture them more quickly. And Mm -hmm. I I think we know the industry's response to that. But I would ask you um, how, as the CEO of a company that makes insulin uh, and many other drugs, you respond to folks like uh, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who immediately tweeted after seeing the stock reaction to the idea that we might waive COVID IP uh, vaccine protections, She said, now do insulin. Does the industry Mm -hmm. view this approach from the Biden administration as kind of a shot across the bow that could affect other medicines as well? Well, that that remains to be seen. I think it's an unfortunate turn of events because, um, uh, you know, the representative you mentioned and others who were proponents of this, I don't think uh, understand the issue particularly well. As relates to COVID, you know, what does a patent do? It forces disclosure in exchange for exclusivity. So actually... By the publication of the patents, which are already on the Internet for both Moderna and BioNTech's um, so-called recipes to make this, it's already disclosed. It's out there. Anyone can, can make those. And most companies, including Lilly, don't enforce our IP in low- and middle-income countries. So if that capability, if there was a desire to fund that, that could already happen. Um, the problems in getting vaccines to the world are quite different and require a huge supply chain effort. I believe the number of vaccines for COVID will deliver in a year as an industry is equal is double the, the normal vaccine production for all other diseases. So it's a huge uh, operational lift in that case. As it relates to insulin, you know, our insulins are, uh, as has been pointed out by, by that same representative, are old products. We actually don't have any enforceable patents or any that we're enforcing um, on insulin in the U.S. or anywhere else. So um, for human insulin, for Humalog, Anyone can make them. They just don't because, ironically, although we hear a lot of complaints about the pricing of insulin, it's, it's a non-economic p- proposition for most biosimilar companies. It's too difficult and too expensive versus the value they could capture. Um, that sounds strange, but that, I think that is the, the facts. Insulin is cheap and widely available in many other markets, as has also been pointed out by representatives in Congress. Um, and so I don't think there's a lot of value in discussing this for those established medicines you mentioned. As it relates to new medicines like Illumiant or Baricitinib, which is, uh, has an EUA in the U.S. for COVID hospitalized patients, I think we showed a better way, which is to just work uh, on the human problem ourselves and with governments. And here we worked with the Indian government to get Baricitinib approved in India. It wasn't until just a few weeks ago. And we've, in a very short time, given voluntary non-royalty-bearing licenses to three large domestic manufacturers and donated a huge quantity of baricitinib ourselves, which is literally on a, on a plane now to India uh, to help aid the problem. Those are the kind of solutions that can actually save lives. And I think this IP discussion is an unfortunate sidebar. Uh, in the end, we'll have more people vaccinated, more people treated for COVID uh, if industry and governments work together uh, to solve the problem. That was Eli Lilly Chairman and CEO David Ricks. He joined me at CNBC's Healthy Returns Summit on May 11, 2021. The keynote is produced by the CNBC events team. For more information on upcoming CNBC events and how you can join us, please visit cnbcevents.com. I'm Meg Terrell. Thanks for listening. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.